So earlier then, this afternoon, uh, we saw that the Lord, and this is somewhat groundbreaking, uh, the Lord is our shepherd, right? And we are examining principles for interpreting analogies and just being a little bit self-conscious in working through some of those images, metaphors, whatnot. Very, very clearly, it's Yahweh. Very clearly, it's God himself is the shepherd of his people. But... Nonetheless, the Lord still shepherds his people in a way that's mediated by appointing human shepherds in his flock as well. And so although, again, the Lord, in a sense, directly shepherds his people, the Lord also shepherds his people in a mediated sense. Now, we remember very famously, of course, that Moses, in Numbers 27, prays to the Lord and says, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And even there, there's this recognition that it is disastrous for human communities not to have human leadership. That there is to be, there are to be leaders, and Moses is praying to God. Uh, who, of course, is leading the people, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. The Lord is going before them in a visible manifestation. And nevertheless, Moses prays, Lord, appoint leaders, raise up people, so that your people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And so there, there is a connection with the shepherd imagery and ruling. You remember, of course, when uh, Ahab and Jehoshaphat are talking about going uh, to war, Micaiah. It comes up and prophesies and says in 1 Kings twenty two seventeen, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each go home in peace. And so again, in, in, with Moses, there's this prayer, this, there's this desire in a positive sense to see the Lord appoint shepherds who will take care of his people. And with Ahab and Jehoshaphat, there's a sense in which there's a disaster for the people because they're bereft of their shepherds. Their their shepherds aren't doing a good job anyway. The people need human leaders who are godly, who reflect and mediate the shepherding heart of God uh, to his flock. So you begin to see, then, in Scripture, starting in the Old Testament, These twin tracks where human beings are shepherds of God's people, but nonetheless God himself is always their shepherd at the same time. So now there's this development. Well, well, who's the shepherd? Well, Well, the Lord is the shepherd, but David is the shepherd. The kings are shepherds. The prophets are shepherds. The priests are shepherds. And and so there are human shepherds, and God is the shepherd at the same time. Now, this, of course, is going to come into sort of a a confluence, which is going to lead to the shepherd who is both God and man. Human shepherd and divine shepherd. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, Before you get to the famous John 10 passage, which we will spend some time in uh, in just a few minutes, you begin to get hints, some direct prophecy and, and some typological hints that the great prayer that, that or the, the prayer that Moses has answered is going to be fulfilled in a great way, in a surpassing way, through the gift of a shepherd who is not just David himself, but the antitype of David, you know, sometimes use the vocabulary of great David's greater son. So that David is a shepherd, but we long for a day when a greater David appears who will shepherd the people of God perfectly. And so these two lines, the Lord is the shepherd and there are human beings sort of in the order of David who are shepherds too, are moving together. They're going to come together perfectly in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Before we get there, though, I wanted to take a look at one extended treatment uh, of the shepherd-sheep imagery, uh, which is found in Ezekiel 34. This is a very famous passage from the book of Ezekiel, 
Uh, and to be very honest, this, this is a passage which, which is enormously encouraging, but also, I, I think, especially if you have a pastoral function in the church, uh, this is a terrifying text. Uh, because one of the things that it does is, is it shows you how seriously God takes shepherding his people. And how, because precisely because he always is the real shepherd, he will not allow his sheep to be abused. He will come and he will save his people from their enemies, even when their enemies are their shepherds. That's a tremendous warning for those who are given responsibility as pastors or elders or teachers uh, in the church. The Lord sets his face in opposition against all of those who harm his flock, even when they've been positioned as under-shepherds with the job of caring for them. This text also, I think, is extremely instructive uh, because you know, sometimes if you, if you want to learn how to do a job, you can, again, sort of by analogy, you can look at really good examples. You can look at role models. This is how you should do it. On the other hand, uh, you can learn almost just as effectively uh, about how to do a good job by looking at negative examples. You know, this is how not to do it. You know, these are the things uh, that God wants you to do. These are the things that God will be very angry with you, you know, if you do. And this passage in Ezekiel, I think, not only gives us the positive description, a very positive picture about how shepherds are to function with their people, but also it gives a very negative picture. Do not be like this. Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. (coughs) Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. That's sort of the also the thesis statement. It's going to get cashed out. You're going, to, you're going to be giving categories now for how it is that they're only taking care of themselves. But this is the great condemnation. Categorically, the problem is summed up here. You are only taking care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Here, then, you're given this the negative perspective, the prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, Now, notice, though, that they are the shepherds. They are the shepherds, but they're just doing a lousy job. Because they're self-centered. They're approaching the flock with no concern whatsoever for the welfare of the flock. All they care about is how the flock can enrich them. Here, there's going to be some material benefit. You know, the wool, the meat, slaughtering the sheep so you can feed on them. The reality is, you know, I don't want to... We sort of psychologize everything, you know, in our society. But you can almost say, you know... Here you, you have the shepherds who are, they're serving the sheep, or they're saying they're serving the sheep, but, but really all they're interested in is, is in, you know, the gratification of their own ego. You know, all, all they care about is, is how they feel. You know, all they care about, you know, is, is praise. All, all they care about is applause. All they care about is reputation. They don't care a bit about the sheep. You know, they just want to see how can I enrich myself, uh, sort of emotionally. How can I enrich myself psychologically? How can I enrich myself materially? God very clearly says, you, you treat my people that way and I will prophesy against you. Do not be self-centered with my sheep. 
Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the choice animals. And the, but you do not take care of the flock. So the first thing, pretty obvious, transparently, is shepherds, in terms of the analogy, shepherds are not to be self-centered. They are to care for the flock. I mean, it's, a, it's very simple. But this is the fundamental reality of how this analogy is deployed for under-shepherds. Notice, you have not, the Lord does not come along and say, you have not ruled them and made them submit to you. You have not cared for them. You have not searched for the strays. In other words, they were out, they were in danger, you abandoned them, you didn't care. Because there was nothing that was going to enrich or gratify you by actually going out and doing what they needed you to do. So, so as soon as it was inconvenient, you just left them. You did not bind up the wounded. Positively, then, the idea is that, again, it's an analogy. It's like spiritual care, certainly in the church. Are you ministering to people in their pain? Are you coming alongside of people who are going through difficult, messy, bloody, diseased things that are part of living in a fallen world, part of being a sinner, part of struggling and going through the darkest valley? Or are you only there when the sheep seem healthy and there's something you can get from them? Do do you give and give and give, not because it's pleasant or comfortable or prestigious, but do you give because that's a sheep that's hurting that needs help? And if you're called by God to take care of the flock, then you look for the sheep that need help, and you spend your time with them. You have not healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays. And then listen to this. This is is something that that every pastor, every elders board should, should... I don't want to say, you know, get, a, get, get someone to, to crochet this, you know, and to put this up on the boardroom. But God is very angry with shepherds who rule his sheep harshly and brutally. You, no matter what, no matter how you begin to understand the implications of this imagery, no matter how you understand the New Testament, you know, leadership and authority, God will not stand idly by while his under-shepherds rule his sheep harshly and brutally. You are not to be content with rolling over people with your agenda. You are not to be someone who will get your way no matter what because you're the shepherd and they're the sheep and if they don't like it, they can get out of the way. God is intensely angry because these shepherds are ruling his people harshly and brutally. Verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. 
There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountainside of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And I think that this is not only an incredible warning, but an incredible encouragement. Uh, that precisely because the, the Lord is the shepherd, he will not allow his flock to be destroyed. Uh, the Lord will not allow the false and worthless and self-centered shepherds destroy his flock forever. He himself will do the job. Uh, he himself will make sure that they're cared for. He himself will bring back the strays. He himself is going to do everything that a shepherd does. The only question really in terms of the under-shepherds, is whether or not God will use them positively to minister to his people this way or whether he will set his face against them and destroy them. Either way, God is going to take care of his sheep. The Lord God, the shepherd of Psalm 23, is going to make sure that the strays are found. He is going to make sure that the weak and the sick are healed, their wounds are bound up. He is going to make sure that they lie down in green pastures. He's going to make sure that they're led by still waters. The Lord is going to make sure that no matter how ruthless and harsh the under-shepherds are, He Himself will make sure that His flock is taken care of. But then, I think there is an extraordinarily important shift that takes place in the imagery in verse 17. Notice this. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. And I think one of the things that's absolutely essential, which we'll spend more time, Lord willing, talking about on Wednesday morning, it is absolutely essential that you don't, sort of make the analogy of shepherd and sheep so concrete, particularly in terms of pastoral ministry, that you lose sight of the fact that the under-shepherds are always sheep too. That is, it is one flock. And so in one sense, when God is talking about judgments, he will say, I will judge the false shepherds. But using Slightly different imagery, he can talk about judging the same people, but now it's not judging shepherds, it's judging between sheep in the flock. In other words, you absolutely must not think, again, just moving forward a little bit, pastors, elders, old covenant here, rulers, prophets, you must not think that certain people in the flock of God belong to a higher species than others. It is not human pastors, sheep, people. Shepherding function, but same species. We're all the sheep. We're all part of the flock. And so when God brings judgment, he can, in talking about the exact same people, he can say, I'm judging the shepherds, or he can say, I'm judging one sheep and another. You see? And I think that's extremely, extremely important when it comes to how we think about pastoral ministry in the New Covenant. We are all sheep. We are all part of the one flock. We are not, pastors, elders are not occupying some sort of high, higher level on, on the Darwinian ladder of evolution. 
It's not that sort of spiritually, you know, we've ascended here and everyone else is just down here and, and everyone else sort of a, a, a dumb sheep and we're the, the wise and smart, you know, homo sapiens ruling them. No, you're a shepherd. But at the same time, when the Lord looks down at you, you say, you're, you're a sheep. I'm going to judge from one sheep to another. I will judge between one sheep and another. And how is he going to do it? Verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I think here, one of the things, again, that you're supposed to remember is that before you get to this comment about David being the one shepherd put over the sheep, you've already had the Lord God say again and again and again and again and again, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to find the strays. I'm going to come down. I'm going to bind them. I will be the one who shepherds these people. And then here you're told that the Lord is going to do this by appointing his servant David to be the one shepherd. And well, well, some some folk, and um, and this is just the wrong interpretation. Uh, some people say, well, this is going to be David himself, you know, at some point in the future, just sort of placed over to rule over everyone in some sort of kingdom context. Well, uh, that's inaccurate. Uh, what I think we're being told here is that you know, the Lord is going to do it directly himself. And he is going to do it through his servant David. But of course, you know, as you're working through Scripture, one of, the, one of the easiest typologies is the Davidic type. This is one of the easiest, one of the most transparent, one of the ones that, that, that's picked up on in the, in the New Testament, clearly and explicitly. And, and so here, coming together, you have the David, the servant, is going to be appointed, and the Lord himself is going to shepherd his people. And it comes together in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and who is the antitype of David. He is Yahweh. He is David. He is the good shepherd. And I think you see this coming together and, and in, in a wonderful way. Then you're told, verse 25, speaking in the future, I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers and seeds and there will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit, and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. And, and then this should sound. This should sound like some other passages. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God declares the sovereign Lord. The Lord is making this covenant of peace, absolute rich blessing here, obviously depicted in symbolic terms. When the Lord himself and David is the shepherd of his flock. When you move, there are a few other heads we will we don't have time to obviously, we're not talking about every text, right? There are times when these types, these foreshadowings, are made uh, even a little bit more explicit. You remember in uh, Micah 5, 1 through 4, you know, Micah 5, 2, great passage. You know, we, we know it because of our children's Christmas plays. Right, uh, the Messiah, the one origin is of old, you know, coming out, being born in Bethlehem. And one of the things that we're told after that, though, is that he, the one who's sort of born in Bethlehem, he will shepherd the people of God in the strength of God. 
so the one being born, we know is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, explicitly told he's going to come and he's going to shepherd the people in the strength of God. And then, also, you have the shepherd imagery, which actually we aren't going to take the time to look at, although it's some of the richest in the Old Testament. You have all of this very, very rich shepherd imagery in the book of Zechariah. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 11, there's an extended treatment of shepherding. And then in chapter 13, there's another extended treatment using shepherding imagery which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the passage says, you know, Awake my sword against the one who is close to me. It's the chosen. Awake sword against the shepherd, the man who is close to my heart. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Right? And, and that text is, is, again, this was to fulfill what was Jesus himself saying, this is to fulfill, this is, this is happening now. I am the great shepherd prophesied about in the book of Zacharias. I will be struck bringing this text to fulfillment. My followers will be scattered. There's one other passage, transitional passage, uh, that I want us to look at. I know we're very, very familiar with this. It's in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And we know again that this is explicitly fulfilled uh, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, We read in Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And and if you've been reading Isaiah, yes, yes, in the first 39 chapters, there are some good things. There's some rays of light, there's some blessing, there's some hope. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of wrath. There's a lot of sifting of nations. And you get to Isaiah 40 and and the contrast. For some people it's so stark, they say, the same person couldn't possibly have written this this section. So now we have have Deutero-Isaiah, we have Second Isaiah, or or Trito-Isaiah, or you you kind of lose track with all the different editors and and writers who are proposed. So so I'm going to write a thesis that says that there are there are 66 Isaiahs, you know, and uh, this is this is Forto Isaiah, you know, number 40 here in this chapter. You know, comfort, comfort my people. It is, a, it is a big contrast. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service or her warfare has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We know that this is, again, Filled in Matthew, said this is fulfilled. John the Baptist's ministry pointing to Jesus Christ. This is fulfilled in, in the advent of the incarnate Lord of glory. And I think that you know, beautiful to think not only in this sort of like you know, the prologue in John's gospel, that, that no one has seen the glory of God, but you saw the glory of God when Jesus of Nazareth passed you by. We have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son. And here you have Jesus Christ coming, the glory of the Lord being revealed in Jesus. You know, and I can't, I don't know how many of you like classical music. I, 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 would, I, I, le- I sort of lead on that I like it more than I do because then I, I seem sophisticated. But the, the one thing that I really do truly love is I love Handel's Messiah. And, and I, I can't read that verse, verse 5, uh, without hearing. And, and because, it's, because it's the middle of the afternoon and you've been very patient, I know it's, I know it's long and I know that I'm relatively boring, and, and I know that it's all these different things and everyone's tired, I'm going to give you the first mercy of the day. I'm not going to sing it for you. You know, but you can't help but hear it. 
I'm the glory and the glory and the glory and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. How do you know that all flesh together is going to see the glory of the Lord? God said so. All he needs to do is speak. And you know that it's as good as accomplished. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And that's all you need to know. He has said it. It's as good as done. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people... Our grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And then you have this contrast which Peter picks up in in 1 Peter, the transience of human life, knowing that all flesh will see the glory of the Lord, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Whatever he says is going to, it's, it's sure and certain. And then because the word of the Lord stands forever, and he appoints people to be his heralds. You, in verse 9, who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. This is sort of obviously before the day of, of you know, wireless microphones and, and amplification systems. You know, so if you want to speak to people uh, something that's really, really, really good, you go up high. You get somewhere where people can see you. You get somewhere where you can get a bit of an echo in your voice, and, and you don't whisper it. You, know, you go up, you have good news, you have good tidings for Zion. Zion, who, who if you forget, if you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Zion needs some good tidings. You know, they need some grace. They need some comfort. And you get to go up and as a herald, go up in a high place and say, listen, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. Now, the rest of this chapter is going to talk about the, sort of how, the, the, how you can't compare God to anything. You know, there's just no one like him. You know, so that even our analogies, in a sense which you're just not even, you're just scratching the surface. You're hardly getting anything about who God really is. He is so amazing. He is so transcendent that no matter how we try to understand him, he's greater. He's more. You just cannot compare him to anything or anyone. He, he, he sort of holds and measures the ocean just, just in the, the palm of his hand. And, and if he's that great, then the Lord rules with power. He rules with a mighty arm. Well, how, how mighty is his arm if he holds the whole, all the oceans in the world in, in sort of in the hollow of his hand? You know, how mighty is that arm if he measures the heavens and it's just sort of like using his, his, his fingers to, to measure all of the universe? How mighty is his arm? He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Then hear this. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. To me, it is amazing. And then it goes on, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The whole context in which this verse is embedded is a context of power and matchless sovereign might over all the universe. But when the shepherd imagery is used, it's used of absolute, loving, tender compassion. As you see that he, he gathers the lambs in his arms. Well, what arm? Well, the arm that you've, you've just been introduced to. The arm, the mighty arm of the sovereign Lord who rules over everything with power. That's his arm. It's the arm of omnipotence. And he, and he uses his strength, his matchless strength in this universe and in this world to, to, to scoop up his lambs, to tenderly hold them next to his heart. 
He uses his infinite power to gently lead those who are who have young. In other words, he uses his infinite power to take care of the most vulnerable of his flock. Small wonder that he is filled with wrath when there are petty tyrant, self-centered shepherds using their own puny might to butt the weak sheep out of the way and to plunder the flock for all that they can get out of it. When Almighty God Himself uses His omnipotent strength to scoop up His lambs, have them nuzzle in close to His chest, carry them, protect them, comfort them. This image, then, knowing that it's explicitly, this passage is explicitly fulfilled in the advent of Jesus, it's this sort of idea that sets up for the the background of John 10, you know, that passage that we're very familiar with. And, and we're not going to take the time to go through it all. You, you can work through that sort of passage on your own. Uh, of course, in John 10, we get that very famous message by Jesus that he is the good shepherd. And, and one of the things that's absolutely essential to understand is that when Jesus talks about his nature as the good shepherd or his role as the good shepherd, he's talking to the Pharisees. And the reason I think that he's using this image when he's talking to the Pharisees is in John 9, you've just had a vulnerable sheep who's been blind, who Jesus has been healed, or Jesus has healed him, and now the Pharisees take this man, they treat him harshly, and then they throw him out. They throw him out of the synagogue, they throw him out of the fold. And then Jesus says, oh, well, let's think about the nature of a shepherd. You know, let's, let's talk about this. And he presents himself as, as the gate. He presents himself as, as the one who, when he speaks, his sheep know his voice. They respond, they follow him because they are his sheep. And, and he, he says, you know, this is absolutely in the same sort of language of Ezekiel 34, the same sort of imagery of Ezekiel 34, you know, there are other people who come in into the flock, but they don't come in through the gate. They're not authorized. They have no authorized access to the sheep. They come in over the wall. You know, they come to steal. They come to kill. They come to destroy. And Jesus is very blunt about this, that there are people who are supposed to be leading and teaching and nurturing his flock who really are just thieves and robbers and murderers. In contrast to them, Jesus says, I have come. <laughs> they may have life and have it abundantly. And I think you just almost have to, from a, remember, from a, a sheep's perspective, you almost have to read that sort of with that Psalm 23 imagery. Uh, the, the Lord has come to meet, again, especially spiritually, all of our, all of our archetypical needs. Everything that we really, really need is found in Jesus Christ and provided to us by him. But then you have something which really seems very dissonant. And I know, of course, living this side of Calvary and the resurrection and Pentecost, this makes sense to us. But the great glory of the Good Shepherd is bound up with his willing self sacrifice for the sheep. But if you remember Moses' prayer and Micaiah's prophecy, the worst thing that can ever happen to sheep is for them to be deprived of their leaders. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Only to take it up again. In other words, the the shepherd will die for his sheep, but the shepherd will live forevermore. The shepherd is going to be raised from the dead. And Jesus will also say, speaking of the paraclete, in the advent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, that to his disciples, it's better for you to go away. If I don't go away, then, then the paraclete will not come to you. So Jesus Christ, 
will die for his sheep. That's how they'll have life. They, the sheep have life through the death of their shepherd and through him taking up his life in resurrection power and eternal glory. Now, that is something we all know. But what it entails is that, in the, not in the same way, but in an analogous way to the fact that human under-shepherds were sheep too. Jesus Christ, as the true Israel, is both shepherd and sheep. Because when you start talking about the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, you can't help but realize, again, sort of theologically, biblical theology, systematic theology, the reality is that the death of the shepherd for his sheep works because it's a substitutionary atonement. But substitutionary atonement is bound up in scriptural imagery with the death of lambs. So that Jesus is the fulfillment of the death of the Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of the death of you know, all of the animals, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. I understand that. But Jesus is identified not only, remember, when, when John the Baptist is, is pointing to Jesus, we recognize that that's in fulfillment of Isaiah 40. But we also you know, are supposed to remember that John the Baptist, in John's gospel, when he points to Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God! who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is both the absolute fulfillment of that Davidic type shepherd. He is Yahweh the shepherd, but he is Yahweh the shepherd and David the shepherd who saves his sheep because he's the Lamb of God. And so you have this fulfillment where he is the shepherd and the sheep, and he's both perfectly. He's the perfect shepherd. He's the antitypical fulfillment of all that you could imagine David could be as a shepherd of his people. But he's also the spotless lamb. This, of course, comes together in a very interesting way in Hebrews, where, of course, the sacrificial animals had to be uh, without blemish, without spot. But in the book of Leviticus, we're also taught that the priests who offered those sacrifices had to be without blemish, without spot. So that if you had any sort of physical defects, you were barred from offering the sacrifices in the temple. Jesus is the spotless high priest and the spotless sacrifice. Like in the book of Hebrews, you know, we're told that Jesus, you know, he is the tabernacle. He's the priest. He's the tabernacle. He's the lamb. You know, he offers himself in himself. You know, that is, he sort of goes into the real tabernacle. He offers himself as a sacrificial, as the great sacrifice of atonement, and he's the one who offers it. He's simultaneously the great high priest and the sacrifice. Because both could only be effective. Atonement could only happen where you had a spotless priest and a spotless animal. And Jesus fulfills them both. So Jesus is both high priest and sacrifice of atonement. Jesus is both perfect shepherd and perfect lamb. I said to my uh, daughters, eight and a half and, and six and a half, this was very, very pathetic in terms of trying to explain shepherding. We were talking, we were chatting about this a little bit. And, and, the best I could come up with. It was, it was early. It was breakfast, you know. And uh, unlike Blake White, who's a superstar, I, I never have day number ones, you know. I have never, never had those days that you were talking about where everything works. You know, so it's breakfast, and, and we're talking about shepherding. And I say, well, so, so I think that Jesus, um, he, he fulfills... Um, shepherdness and sheepness. I don't, my, my daughter says, oh, well, that's a weird word. And then off they go. You know, it is, is, that's not a profound devotion. You know, that's the best I could do before coffee. You know, but you're thinking, there's a sense, though, in which Jesus does do that. He fulfills shepherdness. The essence of what a shepherd is, he fulfills that. 
the essence of that perfect lamb. He fulfills that. He is simultaneously the perfect shepherd and the perfect sheep. Now, this, even in its imagery, connects in a fascinating way in the book of Revelation. Now, I recognize that lamb imagery in apocalyptic has some nuances that it doesn't have in the rest of Scripture. So I understand there's a different sort of interpretive background for it. So you do have apocalyptic lambs who are mighty and powerful and all of the rest. Remember in Revelation chapter 5, you have the lion. You're looking to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you look, look, you look to see this lion and what you see is a lamb that looks as if it's been slain. Right, and then all the he goes and takes the scroll of the right hand of the hand of power of the infinite God who rules on the throne that no one can get to. Revelation four, you know, the whole throne surrounded by obstacles. You, you go up there and you're going to die, and no one can get there. No one can bring God's purposes to pass except the Lamb because he's been slain. And so he goes and he takes the scroll, and, and all of heaven responds in praise. And, and in concentric circles, it's not just heaven. It's not just sort of the, the beings right around the throne. It's then it's all of the angels. Then it's everything in all of creation is responding to the Lamb because he is worthy to be praised. And he's praised in one song with, that's addressed directly and explicitly to the Lamb, or to the one who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. That is God himself. And the Lamb are worshipped in the exact same song, in the exact same ways. He is the Lamb who is slain, who rules over all creation, Revelation 5. But then this is picked up in a very fascinating way in Revelation 7. With this will be done. You can turn there, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Verses 1 through Eight are about um, the 144,000, which represent the uh, most devout Jehovah's Witnesses. And then after them, what applies to us is in verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I think here again from the John 10 text we didn't mention is that Jesus says, you know, I have other sheep. I need to go and get them all and bring them in so there's one flock and one shepherd. And these sheep, and this is one of the great things about being part of the people of God, is that these, are, these sheep are from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and they're all before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That sounds a little bit like Psalm 23. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Now note how, these, the, how the images come together in the next verse. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb is the shepherd. The shepherd is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Jesus Christ, the new covenant shepherd you see these this immense this immense number of rich biblical themes coming together 
The Lord directly shepherding his people. David shepherding his people. The shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. The spotless lamb of God as the substitutionary atonement, taking away the sin of the world. It all comes together in one person. The shepherd lamb, Jesus Christ. And when he then calls us to minister as his under-shepherds, It's something we must take so, so seriously. But in recognition that because salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb, we have every confidence that in the flock of God, there will be difficulty, there will be trouble, but there will be blessing, there will be worship, there will be joy because of the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd who searched for the strays from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language, and bought them with his own blood to bring them together into one flock with he himself, the Lord God incarnate, as their shepherd. Well, may God help us to worship him and to rejoice in in this reality that the Lamb is our shepherd forever and ever. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, I just pray that you will help us to to really be thankful for who you are and for all that you do. And Father, I pray that you will help us to be struck in in a profound way with just how wonderful it is to have you as our shepherd. Lord Jesus, help us to worship you, to trust you, to follow you. And Lord, help us to, again, be thankful to you for being the shepherd who died for us in our place, who shed his blood as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Father, for the remains of today, I pray that you will, by your Spirit, help us to help us to walk as we ought, help us to speak as we ought, and help us to have grateful hearts that worship you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.